heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Finding COVID in the stool. And what does it mean? And I'm not talking about a stool you sit on. I'm talking about your bowel movements. What's going on with COVID in the gut? And how does that give us information that we can use for testing and treatments? And then we'll talk a little bit more about why are placebo-controlled trials a bad idea? What are the ethical issues in insisting on placebo-controlled trials at a time when COVID early treatments are known to be over 85% effective and safe? What's the future of the virus? What about all these variants that you hear about? This is Dr. Lee for America, in for Malcolm. And what's the importance of the diagnostic studies? I want to have our guest today get into a little bit about why the PCR tests are not very reliable and what are some really interesting and reliable tests that she's actually helped develop. Our guest today is Dr. Sabine Hazen a gastroenterologist who is CEO of Ventura Clinical Trials, a research center that has done over 150 clinical trials for pharmaceutical companies and over 100 privately funded clinical trials. She is also CEO of Progenobiome, a genetic sequencing lab that is looking at a signature microbiome that explains diseases. Dr. Hazan has actually been a pioneer in some of the COVID research and looking at the way in which the gut flora, the bacteria in our gut, plays a role in COVID-19. Progenobiome, her company, became the first lab worldwide to detect SARS-CoV-2 virus from patient fecal samples by whole genome sequencing. And the data has been published in Gut Pathogen, which I think is fascinating work that many of you listeners would want to read. Dr. Hazan and her partner at Topelia Therapeutics, Dr. Thomas Barodi, have developed what she feels is the first line of defense against COVID-19, a combination of natural vitamins and biome boosters. And that product is actually available at biomeboosters.com with the proceeds used to support the Microbiome Research Foundation. She'll tell you about her humorous book that she authored with Dr. Barodi. And I also am really pleased to announce that she is the creator 
and chairman of the Malibu Microbiome Conference coming up on March 20th, 2021, that is open to physicians and health professionals providing continuing medical education credit, but also open to laypersons. And actually their goal is to keep the conference focused in ways that lay people can understand it. So I encourage many of you to go to MalibuMicrobiomeConference.com and sign up for this innovative and potentially life-saving conference. And lastly, as a colleague that I have been part of the COVID coalition with for the last year and have learned a lot from Dr. Hazan, I wanna say that she is a woman and a physician on a quest to understand life and help us all have access to life-saving treatments to improve our health. Welcome to Voice of a Nation, Dr. Hassan, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So let's start with how did you make the connection between COVID-19 virus or SARS-CoV-2 virus in the gut? And what have you learned from all that you've been doing in this field for the last year? Um, So it's interesting because I've been on a path in a way to understand microbes and microbes and disease and the relationship of microbes. In other words, you know, the bacteria that are uh, symbiotic versus, you know, uh, parasitic in a way, you know, and all about the balance of, of these microbes in the gut that really create our immunity. So saying that I started, um, uh, clinical trials on the microbiome and disease about two and a half years ago wanting to see what was it in Alzheimer's that um, improved or, or what was it in Alzheimer's that um, is in the gut microbiome that causes Alzheimer's perhaps, right? And, and the reason I say that is I had an interesting case early on where I did fecal transplant on a gentleman who had Clostridium difficile and um, noticed that his mental status started improving. In fact, I wrote the paper and it took a year and a half, believe it or not, to publish because it was just so unbelievable. And it was really unbelievable to me too, because the gentleman went from a mini mental status of 20 to 29 in six months. And he could remember his daughter's birthday and he was playing golf and he was happy and he was, you know, not depressed as he used to be. And so all that I did on this gentleman was really change his microbiome and actually gave him his wife's microbiome. So that was the first, you know, um, kind of like case that just like becomes a one of those um, awakening, right? That you say, what am I doing? What am I doing when I'm changing the microbiome? What is happening, right? So clearly, this biosis early on was my thought, right? Maybe this man had a imbalance of his gut microbiome because he got so many medications. You know, as people get older, they're given so many medications, right? I mean, we talk about polypharmacy of the elderly, right? And, um, and unfortunately, these medications have a tendency to create an imbalance or a dysbiosis in their gut. So I was, that was the first case that kind of started me on that. From there, I started looking into the microbiome of other cases, Crohn's disease. You know, what is doing, what am I doing when a patient has Crohn's 
And then all of a sudden is improving his Crohn's and not needing Umara or Remicade or other medications. And simply by changing his microbiome, I readjusted his, his bacteria in the gut, which basically uh, improved his Crohn's disease. So, you know, these were the cases. And then, of course, you know, little by little, I started talking to my colleagues about this, you know, that I've written data. You know, I own a research center, as you've spoken, um, that does clinical trials, mostly for pharmaceutical companies. So I'm not really an academic doctor. I don't have time to write uh, papers or manuscripts. Or didn't have time anyways, um, two and a half years ago. I was mostly the girl that was, you know, hired to put products into market for pharmaceutical companies. And then when the product became microbiome in a capsule, it made me ask the question even more. What is in the microbiome? What are we seeing? You know, yes, we're all seeing. And then connecting with all these leaders who have written the data from all sorts of academic centers and thus the creation of the Malibu Microbiome Meeting is really where I started seeing that there's a lot more to this than than meets the eye, right? And from there, um, started understanding the microbiome a little bit better. As I started seeing, in a way, you know, the before and after of fecal transplant on Alzheimer's or on that one Alzheimer's case, or the before and after uh, microbiome analysis on Crohn's disease, or the before and after of what is going on with Clostridium difficile, um, little by little, I started understanding the microbiome a little bit better. I mean, we're definitely, at, I'm mile one of 300,000, I say it to everybody. And also there's a huge push of all these probiotics products and all these microbiome products and, you know, a, a way to like awaken the minds in a way to what Hippocrates was saying, all disease begins in the gut. And I think we're all starting to see it. We all had that gut feeling that what we eat may play a role in our disease presentation in the future. What we are putting in our bodies may play a role. It's very clear. I've been doing work with anti-inflammatory diets for guiding patients in ways to reduce general inflammation in my own practice and looking at changes in the diet that affect diabetes, cancer, looking at ways to eat whole food, plant-based, greater intake of foods that are prebiotics and natural probiotics. I do, I want you to comment sometime in the course of our conference today about the just routinely taking probiotics. One of the microbiologists that I've collaborated with has said clearly that just taking probiotics indiscriminately can have adverse effects. And I've heard you say that as well, that you can overload gut with good bacteria as well as bad. So I just wanted to comment. We see this, I'm seeing it in clinical medicine and have for years. So I'm right in sync with all that you're saying. And clearly the gut does affect the brain. And I'm fascinated with your work on Alzheimer's, but we've known for ages that nutritional deficiencies contribute to treatable forms of dementia. So I, I think this is very exciting work. Oh, a hundred percent. And I mean, that's, that's part of the reason, you know, when you talk about, you know, nutritional deficiencies like vitamin D deficiency, 
huge player look at colon cancer on its own, right? I mean, it's a huge player, um, you know, and there's enough data that shows that supplementing vitamin D might actually protect you from having, you know, GI malignancies. So I think um, there's definite uh, treatments, if we could say, in the nutrition realm. But I think with that, there is also misguided publicity that gets put on uh, to sell products, right? So you hear, you know, the, the probiotic industry is a billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollar industry. And, you know, we've noticed ourselves that not all probiotics are created equal. In fact, there's enough data on that that shows that, you know, even in those that are deemed probiotics over the counter, actually nothing in there but, you know, uh, non-probiotics. In fact, no bacteria, no microbe was found in those deemed probiotics. So the, the, the reality is there are probiotics and there are probiotics, right? I mean, what is a probiotic? A probiotic is supposed to mimic a bacteria, a good bacteria in your gut, right? A bifidobacter or lactobacillus that is in your gut, right? But if that bifidobacter, and, and what is the bifidobacter in the gut? It's anaerobic. It doesn't breathe oxygen, right? So if that capsule that you're taking in the mouth is supposed to have some bifidobacter, but it was exposed to oxygen, it's no longer alive. It's a dead bacteria that you're feeding into your gut. Gut, what is a dead bacteria doing to a gut that is living, that is having microbes that are living and not breathing oxygen, right? So I think we have to go back to basics and understand that the gut and, and the colon especially, which is that reservoir of microbes, is trillions of bugs. And, there, and it's not necessarily, and I speak about this in the book, it's not necessarily a good or a bad because we have seen patients that have um, autism, for example, with an enormous amount of bifidobacter. And yet we've seen patients with autism who had a low amount of bifidobacter. So what does that mean? Does that mean that it's really the balance? Does that mean that the bifidobacter is good in some people, but it's not good in others? Does that mean that maybe some people are overdoing it because they've got so much already and they probably shouldn't? I, you know, I treat a lot of people with um, bacterial overgrowth, right? And people come to me and they say, well, you know, I started all these probiotics and then I'm extremely gassy and I'm bloated. And, you know, it seems like the only thing that's helping me is a medication called, you know, is an, an antibiotic to kill off all that, but I have to take it every three months, right? And so when you talk to these patients, you realize well, what they did is they oversupplemented something that wasn't needed. Their gut was in perfect balance. And somewhere along the line, they read that probiotics are good for you. And they started taking massive amounts. And then they created the dysbiosis. They created an imbalance. So, and I always say, it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. And again, there's no such thing as good or bad, in my opinion, in the microbiome world. I think it's all about balances. And we have to start thinking that way. So really, when I look at microbes, when I look at, um, you know, diseases, I'm looking at that relationship. What is, um, is there a balance or is there an imbalance? And is the imbalance creating a dysbiosis this, uh, this and the disease? 
And also what I'm looking for is a formula, right? What is the formula of the microbes that are altered in autism, Crohn's, Parkinson's, and is it microbiome only or is it something else, right? So I think that's the basis of my research. When I when COVID came on, I was in. I started reading like you and everybody else. I started reading the data from everywhere, from China, Japan, Italy. I was translating papers. I speak French, so I started reading the papers in in French, and um, I started noticing. Wow, it's in the ACE two receptors, right? And where is where are the ACE two receptors in the bowels? And if you stretch out the size of the small bowel alone. It's the size of a tennis court, right? I mean, we all know. And the small bowel has an enormous function, right? So if ACE2 receptors are sitting in the bowels, there's a potential for them to multiply in the bowels. And there's a potential for that virus to start creating havoc in your bowels. So that became my obsession in a way to start focusing on the gut and to start focusing on the bowels. And, and the poop, really, because that's, the, um, that's our hint. So I told my scientist, we were busy with autism and Crohn's, and I drive him crazy because I, I go from one thing to another, wherever the wind takes me in a way. But COVID started, and I said, look, we're not going to be able to do fecal transplant on autism or other diseases. We might as well focus on trying to figure out COVID. And why don't we start looking at the stools? And, um, you know, he, he kind of was, was uh, reluctant in a way because he said, this is a long shot. We're not going to find anything. And then he called me when he did the first analysis and he said, you won't believe this, but we found it in 100% of the patients that were what? positive for COVID. Not only that, we I'm, found uh, it in an asymptomatic carrier. So it was a huge breakthrough for us because... It was for me, you know, I do research and I just jump, right? I, it's kind of like diving off the, of a diving board and hoping that you're going to land in water and swim <laughs> up shore, right? So that's how I that's do nice. research, right? And in a way, I trust God very much because I say, well, you know, he brought me this path. So maybe there's something to look for, right? Because I, otherwise, trust me, I'm the girl that would love to just go gardening all day long and do nothing or paint <laughs> that's my hobby so the idea of of playing with stools co or dealing with COVID-19 or dealing with kids with autism or patients with Alzheimer's is not something that a person wakes up in the morning and says oh boy I'm so excited I'm playing with stools today <laughs> right thank I think you are doing it because you certainly are enlightening physicians and leading to new therapeutic options. But you're right, that's not exactly first on our list. No, and it's definitely not something that's, you know, I'd like, I like to brand myself with, right? I mean, most women probably want to brand themselves with a new shampoo or a new mascara, right? <laughs> I certainly didn't want to brand myself with poop. And it's kind of funny because 25 years ago, Dr. Neil Stolman uh, met me at a meeting in GI, the American College of Gastro, and I was presenting a poster back then. And he kept taking me around the posters and would say, um, you know, look at this, the future is in poop. And I would say to him, Neil, if you get me to play with stools, I'm going to hate you. And sure enough, you know, I had to do it because I had to save a life of a physician 16 years ago when I did fecal transplant. 
And, um, you know, it awoke, it, it opened my eyes to the possibilities. And then little by little, you saw other possibilities, you know, people with, um, that were depressed and then you give them someone's stools that is, you know, of a happier person. And then they start becoming happy after the transplant. You know, of course, again, we're at the beginning and these are all anecdotal cases. I want to share something really fascinating with you that I haven't told you before, but what, what is an amazing overlap of veterinary medicine and human medicine, I found in February, 2020, when my newly adopted three-month-old kitten had feline coronavirus, which in veterinary medicine is called feline infectious peritonitis. And it's because the coronavirus in cats in particular infiltrates the gut and causes massive infectious peritonitis, inflammation, and death in 100% of cats if they aren't treated quickly and with antivirals that were developed at UC uh, Davis. And I started digging into the veterinary medicine literature in late January, early February, 2020, when my cat was diagnosed, got some medicine from overseas to treat the cat. And my vet said this was the only cat in his entire practice that survived, but I used vitamins. I used the um, liquid healthy food that we created and I used the antiviral and saved this little cat's life. And he had neurologic symptoms so bad that he could barely walk or move and was really at death's door. And that led me to digging into the veterinary medicine literature about coronavirus in the gut, which when you started talking about it in humans with COVID-19, it was like, oh my gosh, of course, this is huge and hugely important. And then that led me to wonder, is that a mechanism of spread, aerosolized, let's say viral stools in public toilets with the power flush mechanism? Anyway, it was a question going through my mind. So I just no, but you're share. absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And what you saw was an observation. And by the way, what you did is reproduce the data, right? In a way, because yes. what are we known for in medicine is reproduction of data, right? So if you're able to see something is working and you do it and you're reproducing it, then it becomes valid and verified data, right? That's how we do as scientists. So you know, it's important. Well, if we develop it from clinical observations first, that's it. and the more we replicate it in patient after patient, it goes beyond anecdotal. And then we develop clinical trials looking at the hypothesis that comes from clinical practice. And that's what Fauci keeps ignoring in all that he talks about. You can't design a randomized clinical trial if you don't have clinical data based on patient observation first. Yeah, and, and I think patient observation, seeing what's going on in the front line, seeing what works in the front line is super important because that's what gives us an idea of what's the future looking like, right? I mean, think about it. Stem cells exactly. wouldn't be where they're at today if 
somebody didn't try stem cells to begin with, right? Penicillin wouldn't be where it's at today if somebody didn't try penicillin on a patient. All these vaccines wouldn't be there today if somebody didn't try it on patients and see that it worked first. Said that's the foundation of research, right? Seeing that something is doing something and then, you know, bringing it on to a larger um a larger mass. The problem is with, with medicine and, and science and research is that, you know, we tend to ignore the microbiome. We've not looked at it, right? And I think, and, and that's partly because it's brand new, right? We just got all these fancy machines that can look at the microbiome by genetic sequencing, right? I mean, that just happened. It wasn't, we didn't have that 10 years ago. When we were doing all this, we were just all putting stools in someone's colon and saying, okay, well, let's hope it works, right? And then now we have the ability, definitely our lab has the ability to look at what is going on. It's more interesting to me, what is the mechanism of action and what is going on and explaining that mechanism of action than actually the results of a placebo-controlled trial. Because I think- Because I think what happens is we as physicians are, you know, bombarded with so much data. One scientist finds, you know, uh, a medication works on a placebo controlled trial, but then another one disproves it. Right. And it's like one versus another versus another. And then at the end, you're all confused and you go, well, what should I be giving my patient? Right. And even the guidelines take time to get to that because we don't have you know, a consensus amongst doctors, like a, a consensus that says, yeah, you know what, without a, without a doubt, this is the treatment. Without a doubt, this is 100% success, right? There's no such thing anymore in medicine as 100% success. Let's yeah. talk more about that when we come back from our break. We'll yes. stop and take a brief pause and we'll be right back on Voice of a Nation. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. My fellow Americans, our mission here at AmericaOutloud.com is clear. We're here to defend our founding values and principles at a moment when they are under unprecedented assault. 
and to cover the news objectively and offer intelligent commentary on the challenges we face as a nation. You can tune in and join our family of listeners 24-7 in this vital crusade. Our apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Find us on iHeartRadio or our world-class media player. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The silent majority has spoken. We say, let the silent voices be heard. You can be the voice of change. Contact our producer at libertyatamericaoutloud.com. Libertyatamericaoutloud.com. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm on Voice of a Nation. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Sabine Hazan, gastroenterologist and COVID-19 researcher on the microbiome with some of the cutting edge information about the connection between your gut and COVID-19 and some of the exciting research that Dr. Hazan has been conducting over the past year, as well as more information about the upcoming Malibu Microbiome Conference on March 20th, 2021. And that is open not only to physicians for continuing medical education, but also it's open to the public for learning about what the new research is showing and what can you do to reduce your risk of getting sick with COVID and what are some early treatments that are effective and safe. So you were talking about the limitations of placebo control trials before the break. What are the, what, what would you say are the, really at this point in time, the ethical issues with the fact that Fauci keeps insisting on we need randomized placebo control trials at a time when we as practicing physicians have seen an 85% success rate in early treatment with existing FDA approved medicines we use every day for other causes, other conditions, and we've used them for 65 plus years. What are the ethics of creating a placebo control trial under those circumstances? Well, it's, it's a challenge, that's for sure. Um, you know, when I started my trials, actually, I started them uh, with the intent to see the data, right? I wanted to show the FDA the data on clinical, on, on by the way, three, contra- three controversial trials, right? So one being the hydroxychloroquine trial, the second one being an ivermectin, the hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, zinc, vitamin C, and D, uh, as a treatment option. The second one being hydroxychloroquine with vitamins versus vitamins alone. And then the other one being um, being um, ivermectin, doxycycline, and zinc, right? And so initially when I started the trials, which was April 2nd, we submitted them as a open label because we said, listen, we're seeing... Uh, we want to see the data. We want to see our people improving. Are people having side effects? Are people having QT enlargement? You know, my husband's a cardiologist, Dr. Alon Steinberg. And, you know, we wanted to put everybody on halter to see the data. Is, is hydroxychloroquine azithromycin causing cardiac problems, right? And we wanted to see it with the FDA because that's how we do research always. 
So, and you know, it is one thing to do and treat as, as a physician because you're off label and you have no choice. You have the patient in front of you and you're going to give it all. But when we, when it comes down to giving a label of a drug um, and to make it a standard for the FDA to say, yes, uh, hydroxychloroquine, yes, ivermectin is for COVID, you need to do the clinical trials with the FDA. So I embarked myself on that, you know, uh, on that motion to start that again, there is something wrong with me because, (laughs) you know, I I'm a glutton for punishment. So I I started on these clinical trials. I didn't think they were going to be so political, so politicized. And, um, you know, my interest was to see the data and it was open label initially, all of a sudden we were told, no, it needs to be placebo controlled. And my biggest challenge was placebo controlled in the middle of a pandemic. Are we crazy? What are we even thinking of? Right. I mean, Rome is burning. Do you ask to do, let's try to turn off the fire with half of you are using salt water and the other half of you are using nothing. And then the other group is using water. I mean, come on, this is what we're doing here with this pandemic, right? Doing placebo control. But I realized also as a scientist and having done clinical trials for so long, we need these trials to show the FDA. The one thing that I realized as I was doing these trials is, one, it's very difficult to convince patients to enter these trials because nobody wants, people are dying. They're not going to want to try a placebo sugar pill instead of the real stuff for their trials, right? So it makes the, the trial extremely difficult, especially when it's a safety trial. That's one. Number two is we're all different how can we possibly be compared, right? How could, you know, 99% of patients are going to do great, right? So if that 99%, I do nothing and I give them nothing, they're going to be fine because they probably have a good microbiome. They're probably super healthy inside, right? Because where is our immunity? Our immunity is in the microbiome. So if somebody has a microbiome that's super healthy and super strong, they're going to survive COVID-19. If somebody keeps their body and everything in balance, their low stress level, you know, I, I, it's interesting because I speak to a lot of farmers and, um, and a lot of farmers have had very, very mild COVID, right. And really don't need anything. And one wonders like, is it because they're playing with the soil? Is it because they're playing with the manure of the cows, et cetera? So when you talk about veterinarians, et cetera, right? So that's what we learn from the animals, right? The manure of the animals is so, you know, pure in some animals that are, you know, grass fed and allowed to walk in the pasture, et cetera, versus the animals that are like industry in the industries, right? And so, and, and in those animals, you see they're stressed and they have a disease called Yoni's disease, which is very similar to Crohn's disease, right? So we learn all that from the microbiome. And I think, so going back to placebo control, I think what we're going to come up with, and that's the interest of my studies, it's really to see, is a person's microbiome stronger that allowed them to survive COVID versus a person that doesn't have a strong microbiome that died from COVID? And so, because at the end of the day, my job is to show 
the microbiome in action, right? And and also having identified COVID in the stools gets us to the next level, which is if we identified it, we need to show that the drug that we're thinking of needs to hit the gut and therefore the virus disappears from the gut, right? And so to me, that's really the interest of my study. That's really, um, so regardless of placebo control, it makes it very tough. But at the end, I think the, the data is gonna hopefully show that those that succeeded had a stronger microbiome and that the virus hopefully got out of the stools and disappeared after treatment. And therefore, you know, using a treatment that is focused on ACE2 receptors, focused on the gut might be the next generation of treatment. And so to me- That is important to keep in mind. And one of the things that we were finding all last year is that people who were already on ACE2 receptor blocker medicines to lower blood pressure seem to have a little better course with COVID as well. Maybe they didn't get sick. Maybe they didn't get as sick. But I I think that that was another issue that we found. What have you found about whether hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, for example, actually penetrate the gut? Could you tell our listeners more about what- I I can't really discuss those because they're in a clinical trial. So I can't really discuss, you know, clinical trial findings until, you know, the FDA looks at it. Um, Okay. So I'll pass on that. Okay. Well, one of the things- Well, it's difficult because as you can imagine, you know, doing clinical trials, you have to follow ICHGCP guidelines and and there are, you know, rules, et cetera. So we have to, we have to not jeopardize the trial and we have to continue doing the trial the right way, in my opinion. So, you know, well, no, I'll that, leave... that makes sense. I didn't and, 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 to, to and to be honest, I'm bl- yeah. And to be honest, I'm blinded. So I don't even know what patients are getting. Right. So for all I know, they're getting just the vitamins and improving. Right. So we need to finish, we need to do these studies and we need to finish them and we need to show them to the FDA and we need to do them, you know, ethically and accurately and, and see the data, you know, and to, to help really, because I don't think we're out of this anytime soon. Right. What do you think? Well, I, I think we have options for early treatment that we could have been using that would have gotten us out of it a lot sooner and would get out get people out of it sooner now. I mean, I've certainly seen in my practice that when I started the algorithm, for example, developed by Dr. Peter McCullough and his team of international experts that involved either hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, azithromycin, doxycycline, vitamin D, zinc, vitamin C, and corticosteroids, and inhaled budesonide or oral prednisone, and anticoagulants, I was able to keep all of my patients that had COVID out of the hospital and none died. So I, I think we have been subjected to government micromanagement by politicians and bureaucrats that tied the hands of physicians to do what we could have done clinically. So I think we could but I'll be- tell, So I'll tell you, I, I've seen the same thing. And that's why I- it pushed me to do the clinical trials myself. And remember, I'm not funded by any pharmaceutical companies. It's interesting about the lisinopril or ACE2 receptors because that uh, ACE2 inhibitors, because that was one of the first trials that I thought of 
of putting on clinicaltrials.gov initially. Uh, but yes, this is, but unfortunately, and I think what most physicians don't understand is there's the treatment of off-label and then there's the treatment of pharmaceutical and pharmacological treatment, right? And right. you know, the, the whole basis of research is founded on the principles of ICHGCP guidelines. The whole world functions under ICHGCP guidelines and putting these drugs to market. So as following these guidelines, so it's very difficult to come out, to come up with a formula, even though you're seeing it work, even though Dr. McCullough is seeing it work, it's difficult for the FDA to say, okay, you know what? Yes, let's make this the formula. It's difficult for the EMA, European Medical Association, which governs all the European research centers, for them to also say that. So you have to show it to the FDA. You have to show it to the EMA. That's why we do clinical trials. That's why we write these protocols. That's why I wrote these protocols. That's why I put myself out there to show the FDA. Because at the end of the day, there's there's rules. It's the foundation of research. And even though people, you know, have, you know, criticisms of Dr. Fauci, he is abiding by the same rules, which is the foundation of research and putting drugs out to market. And I think, you know, if we start standardizing a treatment or formula, then what about the pharmaceutical company that started the treatment for H. pylori? Why did they have to go through four phases of clinical trials if all of a sudden, you know, Dr. Barodi, actually, who was behind the formula, um, could have just said, look, this is the treatment for H. pylori and let's make it a standard. But unfortunately, even he had to go through phases of clinical trials and showing the data. There's a step-by-step approach that is very tedious. Nobody likes the paperwork. Nobody likes the regulations. But unfortunately, you have to show it and do it the right way. Otherwise, we don't have research. And ultimately- well, that's true. In the midst of a pandemic, those of us that are trying to save lives with our patients every day have to use the tools at hand in a logical hundred percent based on the pathophysiology of the organism as we come to know it. And and granted, we need <clears throat> a certain lead time to try and understand this new. SARS-CoV-2 virus that had some unique characteristics. I mean, the flu virus doesn't typically cause massive cytokine storm risk and massive inflammation and massive blood clotting the way the SARS-CoV-2 virus did. So we had to learn about the fact that you either treated early in the first few days of symptoms, or you risk the fact that people had a massive inflammatory response and massive blood clotting response, and they were fast, critical ill. So we, we, had, we have two things going on. We have the urgent demands in a pandemic for the practicing physician trying to save lives. I was not going to sit back and watch my patients on my watch die by my doing nothing. I was going to find out what I could, do what I could as safely as possible, with the patient's informed consent. And you're talking about exactly the way that we build the knowledge base for the future so that clinical medicine is practiced in a logical and rational and data-based safe, effective way. The two are both important. It's just in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. You have to have yes. time to do trials. 
And, and the two are not exclusive, by the way. One can be but, happening but. while, you know, I've been treating my patients off label because like you, I was not going to let my patients die. And certainly the ones that didn't want to enter the studies. Um, I think the studies of placebo controlled trials may be a bit biased in a way, because what I've realized is uh, when you look at the data that's out there on trials that were done, placebo controlled trials, first of all, they don't have a formula. It's just a one drug. And we all know, you know, we didn't treat H. pylori with one drug. It needed a formula. Clostridium difficile, which is, you know, a bacteria you get from other antibiotics that secretes toxins in the gut and diarrhea. We didn't treat it with just one antibiotic. In fact, fecal transplant helps it at 92 to 99% success. So what are we doing when we do fecal transplant? We're giving a ton of bacteria. So it's definitely a formula that is given. So the idea that just a one pill solution is going to work for this virus is, is ludicrous in my opinion, uh, because you need a formula. So the, the trials that are done out there, first of all, don't have a formula. The second thing that's important about the placebo controlled trials is that um, not everybody's going to respond, but also the investigator himself is not going to pick the worst patients, right? You're not going to give a placebo to a patient whose oxygen is less than 90%, right? So technically, these trials are enrolling healthier COVID patients. So these trials are, are doomed to fail to begin with because it's a healthier population that even if you did nothing would probably do great. So the only way to see if the drug is working in a placebo-controlled trial is really to take the worst of the worst patients that you prevented them from going to the hospital. And I'll explain. You know, you cannot compare a patient with diabetes, COPD, sleep apnea, CHF to a person that has no past medical history, right? So you give that patient placebo, he's probably going to end up in the hospital, right? But are you going to take a chance giving that patient placebo? Absolutely not. And so that's been my practice, right? I'm as a scientist that's basically seeing, and in fact, part of our inclusion criteria is we're not taking those severely ill patients into the trials because we don't want them dying on our trials, right? So that's the biggest loophole. And that's the biggest problem with the placebo controlled trial is you're really taking the healthiest of the COVID patients, not the sickest. What you're seeing in your clinic is the sickest. What I've seen in my clinic, what Dr. McCall has seen in his clinic are the sickest, the people with oxygen saturations less than 90%. Heck, I had a patient with, you know, and he made it in the news, oxygen saturation of 77%, treated at home, should have died. He had kidney problems, he had sleep apnea, he had diabetes. He had bypass surgery, heart disease, obese. That guy should have died for all intent purposes had he gone to the hospital because of his comorbidity and his oxygen saturation. But guess what? He survived at home therapy. But it wasn't a one pill solution for that guy. It was multiple drugs. And, and unfortunately, that's called the art of medicine, right? It's the art of learning who your patient is, who is your patient going to take meds or is your patient not going to take meds and anti-pharmaceutical drugs, right? Is your patient a compliant patient or a non-compliant patient? Two different standards for treatment, right? So the art of medicine is what needs to be treated, is what needs to be happening here. You know, there isn't a day 
where I scream at doctors because I'm telling them, try ivermectin, try, uh, you know, um, doxycycline, try, you know, vitamins, try vitamin C infusion, try this, try that, right? And the problem is we're so guided as physicians to be following these guidelines. Doctors are scared. You know, they're scared of the lawyers. They're scared of the academic centers they work for. They're scared of the institution. And, and that's a problem. We've lost the ability to practice the art of medicine. We've lost the ability to be physicians. And deep down inside, every doctor wants to help their patients, wants to save their patients and wants to practice. But at the same time, this is why the collegial efforts are so important for doctors to talk to doctors. When I started with these COVID trials, I was not going to do it on my own. I called the person who I trust. Who do I trust with my life? Dr. Tom Barodi. Why? Because he's achieved cures for things that nobody would even think of. So when I made that phone call and I said, will you help me? write the protocols? Will you help me figure out a solution that I can present to the FDA that I can work on and put the clinical trials? He stepped up because that's his heart for humanity. Why? Because some doctors believe in the art of medicine. Some doctors believe that you have to try. Patients want you to try. Nobody is going to fault you for trying to save your, their kid or their moms, but they will fault you for not trying, for not trying different research, different clinical trials. Why am I in the clinical trial business? Because I give patients the ability to have hope with different treatments that are coming down the pipeline. You know, when we talk about a cynophilic esophagitis, there was no cure or treatment for it, but now there is a clinical trial for it that could give those people hope. That's important. When we talk about Crohn's disease, you know, before we did clinical trials on biologics, we had nothing for these patients. So clinical trials gives them hope, but also being a physician, that's getting yourself to try these meds that are in the clinical trial world. And also saying, you know what? There is a clinical trial. Let me try to bring those patients into that clinical trial to help the whole mission, not just treating off-label, et cetera. So I think it all works. I think we all have to work together. I think the, own, the message of this virus to me is really unity, unity between the scientists that see red and blue or purple and, and unity, basically. This virus was meant to unite the world, probably give an awakening to the microbiome. The perfect microbiome is disappearing. That's what we're talking about at the microbiome meeting that I'm doing, um, we have to be conscious of that because with the disappearance of the microbiome, you know, humanity may not survive. And, and I think that's very important. And that's why we have to come together and we have to unite and put all our resources together to find a solution. That's my opinion. Well, I think you're exactly right. And actually, that's what's been so exciting being part of the C-19 Coalition of Doctors because in that group that you're part of and I'm part of, there are over 300 doctors coming together from around the world, different specialties, different backgrounds, scientists, physicians, veterinarians. It really is an incredible sharing of information. And when some of us have difficult, challenging patients who are quite sick, we put it out to the group 
and people have great ideas. And that comes back to your point about giving patients hope. It comes back to your point about the art of medicine, which I find extraordinarily meaningful and very much a part of my whole career in medicine for the last 35 years. I'm a little ahead of you in this. And <laughs> it has been the thing that, that I found the most meaningful about trying to find solutions through the COVID pandemic was the fact that the patients were so grateful that I was willing to step outside the box and, and confront the medical tyranny that we were all facing and just say, I'm going to do the best I can. No one's 100%. No one has all the answers. We're going to do what is safe and effective as best to the best of our ability. And I think the thing that I'm the most really um, quite upset about, and it really bothers me greatly, is to see the number of physicians across the country, and even my own internal medicine doctor that I have a great deal of respect for normally, said, I don't treat COVID. And I'm sitting there to myself thinking, how can anyone face a family or a patient you've worked with for years and say, I don't treat COVID. Uh, it's, it's mind boggling to me. So well, what you're doing is, is the same I'm doing. We're trying to do the best we can and learn what we can as fast as we can to help people survive this. Yeah. But realize also, you know, there's different doctors and, and different mentalities, different energies. Um, and I think, you know, I don't blame those doctors, really. I just find that, you know, people are comfortable in their little um, uh, zone of just following the guidelines. And that's fine. I mean, you know, there's certainly I, I'll tell you, for me, it, it's been very frustrating doing these clinical trials, especially the placebo component, especially when a patient crashes and you don't know what he's getting. And um, having to deal with that, uh, it's also, you know, how demanding these patients are. They're extremely anxious. They're multiple phone calls during the day. And, um, and, and it's stressful. It's stressful for any human being that's taking care of COVID patients because you have a life on, their, on your hands and you're really not sure whether you're, uh, you're doing something right. Especially at the beginning when I was doing this, I was like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm giving, if it's going to work, I'm seeing some data, but then there's data that's contradictory. So definitely those challenge the minds and scare people. I think it takes a certain personality. And I'll tell you, I was sitting with my husband somewhere and I said, oh my God, I'm, I'm ready to quit this trial, these trials. It's so demanding. I can't do it. I, and he said to me, he reminded me, he goes, but look at the amazing connections you've made. Look at the ability you have to talk. Here I am talking every day to a man I respect so much, Dr. Barodi, um, who has been the pioneer of fecal transplant. You know, for us GI doctors who do fecal transplant, we put this guy on a pedestal as a king. You know, we respect him, we trust him. And so for me to be able to talk to him, to have published, to have written a book with him that's in a way educational, but also a little bit on the funny side, and for him to let me put that title, you know, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing ride. And it is, it's like being on a train and just keep on moving. And I have to remind myself I'm on a fast paced train 
And I just got to keep moving because I know the answer is close. And I know at some point people are going to jump on the train. And that's all we have to do, right? We have to just keep driving, keep driving, not look at the negative, not look at the criticism, just keep driving and hope as many people, you know, step on the train with you and follow you. And really, that was the movement he started with fecal transplant with GI doctors. And look at us now. I remember 16 years ago, doctors. That is very exciting. Yeah, no, 16 years ago, I'm sorry to interrupt, but 16 years ago, when I wanted to do fecal transplant on a physician in a hospital, I was told that I was, you know, crazy and that it's scientific and it's research and there's no data behind it, right? Here we are today, 92 to 99% success post-fecal transplant with C. diff. Very exciting, but at the same time, we have to keep our focus. To quickly mention the website for your upcoming microbiome meeting before I will need to sign off and also remind people of the website where they can sign up for your clinical trials. The book is called Let's Talk SHIT.org. And it's basically available on Amazon. It talks about fecal transplant, C. diff, microbes in general, the microbiome for, you know, and, and, and research that was done by ethical scientists uh, from various academic centers are mentioned in that book. So it's actually very Um, It was reviewed uh, by a lot of my colleagues in the field of GI. And then uh, lastly, the the trials are on progenobiome.com. We definitely have forms in there where people can join. Um, We um, have three clinical trials going on right now, and we're just doing them slowly, slowly. So, um, you know, quality is very important in research and quality is very important to me. Excellent. Okay, wonderful. And thank you so much for being with us today as we close Voice of a Nation today. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm. And we want a special thank you to Dr. Sabine Hazan for joining us with fascinating information on the microbiome and your health. This is your life, your health, and your freedom at stake. Get involved, get loud, and do all that you can to help make the world a better place around you and your community.